I'm reading the last chapter of Matthew 5, in which we hear Jesus say again, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's a pretty significant basketball game this afternoon. I think it starts around 2 o'clock, and many of us hope to be watching or listening to it. The University of Michigan is paired off against Duke University. Duke is a number one seed in the NCAA basketball tournament, and Michigan, I think, was the 39th or 40th seed. I've forgotten for sure. But a lot of us are going to be watching. How many of you hope the blue team wins? How many of you are going to be praying that the blue team wins? <laughs> All right. Well, that must settle it because Jesus says if two of you agree on anything, it will be done for you by the Father in heaven. So there's no need to us watch that game. It's going to happen. The problem is both teams, as you may know, are blue. So in your prayers, you might want to be a little more specific than that. And one of them will be blue before the sun sets on this first day of spring. Have you ever wondered where such things as school loyalty comes from? To a great extent, what you and I are, in terms of our likes and our dislikes, is a product of those who influenced us in the formative years of life. Our parents, our teachers, our friends, others, who played significant roles in our younger years had a lot to do with shaping our preferences and our convictions. What kind of secular music do you like? You like classical, western, bluegrass, popular, jazz, folk? Chances are, if you think back to your youth, you can identify the person who had a lot to do with influencing your musical taste. Many of us identify with one of our country's two major political parties. And for most of us, that identity is a result of the influence of someone we respected at the time in life when our political awareness began to form. It may sound like heresy for you to hear this, but I grew up believing that the best cars made by what we used to call the Big Three were those of the Chrysler Corporation. And the reason I believed that was not that I had done some kind of a market analysis or a technical study. It simply derived from the fact that when I was a boy, my dad drove Plymouths and then Chryslers. A young couple gets married in June. They get along marvelously until the snow begins to fall. And their first real fight comes in the month of December when they try to decide whether they're going to open their Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. And the reason for the fight, of course, is that 
His family did it one way, and her family did it another. Every year, usually in the month of October, the greatest battle since the Civil War divides the people of Michigan. And that's the day the University of Michigan and Michigan State University take to the gridiron to engage in mortal combat. Most of the people of our state didn't go to either school. And yet most of the people of our state have taken sides. And they will cheer wildly for the blue side or for the green side. And later that day will be gleeful or depressed depending on the outcome of the game. And the basic reason for this, in most cases, is that they grew up in homes where the decorations were green or blue on that particular Saturday in October. The basic point that I want to make is that many of our beliefs and convictions were shaped by those people who had the earliest opportunity to influence us. And those opinions, those opinions that first took root in our hearts and minds, are the most resilient to change or even serious consideration. Only grudgingly will a person raised in a blue home change sides and wave a green flag on that particular Friday. It takes an overwhelming amount of argument and evidence to convince a person who has been a lifelong supporter of one of our two major political parties to move his ex to the other side of the ballot. And only a terrific bargain and a lot of persuasion will get a man who's driven Chevy trucks all of his life to make a down payment on a Ford. This weight of first influence is found in almost every area of life, and of greatest interest to us, of course, is religion. Many of our moral convictions and our religious beliefs were shaped in the same way as our opinions and other arenas of thought and behavior were shaped. Most of the things that we believe to be true were planted in our hearts and minds by people we respected when we were young in years or young in our faith. And because we learned these things from people that we looked up to and loved, probably in a setting where there was very little dissenting opinion, they have a certain indelible resilience attached to them. This often makes it seem unnecessary for us even to think about these things that we take for granted and almost impossible to consider changing them. Examples of this kind of from-the-cradle-to-the-grave religious opinion abound. A person raised in a Presbyterian home understands that it is God who chooses us for salvation, while someone with Methodist roots understands just as strongly that it is we who choose God and the salvation that he offers. A man who was an altar boy in his family's Episcopal church believes that infants and children should be baptized, while his neighbor, who sang in the children's choir of his family's Baptist church, believes that they should not be baptized. A woman who grew up in a Unitarian church was taught and believed that Jesus Christ was a good man, but no more the Son of God than any other human being, while her neighbor, 
who spent her childhood in a non-denominational but evangelical church, is convinced that the deity of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine of any true religion. Christians disagree and sometimes argue about a great number of things. The permanence of salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit, the amount of water that is required for a legitimate baptism, the roles of men and women in the home and in the church, the relevance of the Old Testament. And in many of these discussions, people declare positions they've held since they were very, very young, and they speak in tones that indicate they have no intention of changing their minds. In our scripture readings this morning, Jesus addresses things that people had been taught and believed to be true since they were very small. Things that had been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, by rabbis in the synagogues, and by parents in the homes of Israel. These things were so commonly accepted that they who believed them had no reason even to examine them until they stood on that mountain on that day and heard Jesus speak of these things. Apart from the specifics that Jesus addressed, this collection of the Lord's teachings challenges us and the religious convictions that many of us have held from the time that we were barely able to speak and to walk. This is a complex passage of scripture, one to which several weeks could easily be devoted. I'm limiting myself for reasons of time to asking two questions about it. The first is, to what does the Lord refer when he says, you have heard that it was said? And the second is, what is the meaning to us of his words, but I say unto you? The first of these questions is about Christ's frame of reference in each of the six paragraphs that we read a little while ago. When he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. It's obvious that he's taking exception to something that has been said and believed in Israel for a long time. But the question is, to what is he taking exception? At first glance, he seems to be referring to the Old Testament in general and to its Mosaic law in particular. Of the quotations that he makes, two are directly from the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. And of the rest, most of their words are found in that law of which the Ten Commandments are a part. And thus, it appears obvious on a quick examination that what Jesus is calling into question is the foundation and the bulk of the Old Testament. If this is what he is doing, the implications for us are many and they are vast because they impact our view of the nature and the reliability and the usefulness of the first 39 books of the Bible. A not uncommon belief among Christians is that the Old Testament is of little use to Christian believers. These folks would say it contains some interesting history and beautiful poetry but in the Old Testament, a veil covers the face of God, a veil that is lifted in the New Testament. 
It's not at all uncommon to hear Christians say when the older part of the Bible is cited in a discussion or an argument, well, that's the Old Testament, as if it shouldn't even be quoted in our discussions of important things. And those who take this view would first cite these words of Christ that we're looking at this morning. Their claim is that by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you that Jesus finds the Old Testament inadequate and here begins to replace it with teachings of his own. A hurried reading of his words here in Matthew seems to support this view. But is that what Jesus is really doing? Is the Old Testament, or any part of the Old Testament, his frame of reference when he says, you have heard that it was said? I believe that what the Lord is here addressing and correcting is not the Old Testament, but the common and popular misrepresentations of the Old Testament by the leaders and teachers of Israel. And the reasons I think this fall into two categories, one are those that are more or less external to the text and the other internal to it. To anyone who is at all conversant with the teachings of Christ, the suggestion that he would challenge or second guess any part of the Old Testament is strange. For in other passages in which he addresses the nature and the authority of scriptures, he is clear in his statements about their divine origin and their permanence. Earlier in this very chapter of Matthew, Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law. If you and I were to take a moment and run outside and look around, we would discover that heaven and earth have not yet passed away. And then he adds this, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, which hardly seem to be the words of a man who is about to discard or seriously amend some of those very commandments. In John 10.35, Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. In Mark 14.49, he says, Scripture must be fulfilled. Peter was a man who, for more than three years, sat at the feet of Jesus, being trained for positions of leadership in the church that Jesus came to establish. Peter wrote this about the Old Testament prophets in his first epistle. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preached the gospel to you. The Old Testament is often called, as it is in our unison reading today, the law and the prophets. This is a phrase that the Jews used to encompass the breadth of what you and I call the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus said that the law would stand until heaven and earth are dissolved. Peter claimed that the work of the prophets was not for them, but for us in Christ. There are many other passages that could be cited to support the idea 
that Jesus held a very high view of the Old Testament, but these are enough to call into serious question the claim of those who say that in saying you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you that Jesus was somehow changing or dismissing the Old Testament. But even more compelling evidence is found in these six paragraphs themselves. In the first, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And then continues to condemn unwarranted hostile attitudes and negative speech toward others. If the Old Testament addresses only behavior, like murder, and fails to deal with attitudes and feelings toward others, then they have a point who say that the Lord is here improving on that which was already written. But as a matter of fact, the Old Testament does speak to these things. Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And not only this, but the commandment, you shall not bear false witness, warns those who would please God to be very careful about the truth of what we say about others and the necessity of saying it. What the Lord says in this paragraph was already said in the Old Testament. But evidently, many of the popular teachers in Israel were saying something different. They were saying something like this. When it comes to your enemies, anything you do or say that falls short of murder itself is permitted by the law and acceptable to God. These men fall under the condemnation of those who not only break the commandments of God for themselves, but they teach and encourage others to do the same thing. In the second of these six paragraphs, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. And then continues to condemn not only the act, but the thoughts of the mind and the desires of the heart that might lead to the act. Again, if the Old Testament deals only with sinful acts and not with the thoughts and feelings that might lead to those acts, then the Lord's alleged improvement of the sacred text is a good thing. But in fact, the Old Testament does deal with such things. Indeed, the seventh commandment does say, you shall not commit adultery. But three verses later, we come to the tenth commandment that says, you will not covet your neighbor's wife. Coveting is not an act. Coveting is a thought Coveting is a desire. Coveting is a matter of the mind and the heart, just as Jesus said. Again, the Old Testament that the Lord seems to be correcting already contains his corrections. It's easy to imagine that the teachers of Israel were telling the men of Israel regarding the commandment forbidding adultery, anything short of the actual act itself is permitted by the law and is acceptable to God. No wonder, particularly if this is the kind of corrupt teaching Christ condemns, Matthew tells us that at the end of his sermon, the people were astonished at his teaching. 
for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And finally, time being short, I'd like to look with you at the last of these six paragraphs. Here, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And continues with those words that are poetically beautiful for us to hear, but practically very hard for us to obey. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Those who wonder what Jesus is addressing in these paragraphs, the Old Testament, or the misrepresentation of it, find the clincher in these words. Because while the Old Testament does indeed say, you shall love your neighbor, nowhere does it say, you shall hate your enemy. And thus, whatever Jesus is referring to in these quotations is not the Old Testament and must be what people were saying about the Old Testament. And not only this, but the law also anticipates what Jesus said about our attitudes toward those who are aliens and enemies. In the language of the Old Testament law, brother is a word used to refer to a fellow Hebrew, while a stranger is an alien, a non-Hebrew who was living among the Hebrews. In Deuteronomy 24, 17, we read, You shall not pervert justice do the stranger. In Exodus 23, 9, we read, You shall not oppress a stranger. But even more to the point are these texts. In Deuteronomy 22, we find instructions to the Jews about what to do with lost property that belongs to a fellow Jew that they discover. And it says, You shall not see your brother's axe or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly return them to your brother. And then this language in Exodus 20 through that says essentially the same thing, but with respect to the property of an enemy. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall certainly return them to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall surely help him with it. Here. A Hebrew was expected to treat his brother and his enemy with the same regard and the same respect. Yet the teachers of Israel, men looked up to for their knowledge of the law, respected for their alleged piety, were teaching something entirely different. They said that God says, you shall love your brother, you shall hate your enemy. In these paragraphs, the Lord is not correcting the scriptures. He is correcting the misrepresentation of the scriptures. And in all of this, you and I learn some valuable lessons. First of all is the lesson that we who teach in any way ought to learn. Whether you're teaching your children in the quietness of your homes or publicly here in the church in some way, We are warned to be very, very careful about what we teach and to be sure that it is the truth and the whole truth 
and nothing but the truth, as our culture uses in another context. We leave this study of the teachings of Christ with our high view of the Old Testament scriptures intact. They were and they are the very word of God. The lessons of its history are ours to learn. Its sorrowful acknowledgments of human sin and its beautiful expressions of praise are ours to repeat. Its prophecies point us to Christ and the redemption that he purchased for us on the cross. And its law answers our anxious question, what does the Lord your God require of you? There is no fence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The old is as rich and valuable a resource to the Christian as is the new. And by these familiar words of the one we call Lord, each one of us is challenged to take a fresh look at things that we believe since we were very young in our years or very young in our faith, examining each of them in the light of Scripture to be sure that these things that were said to us of old Conform to Jesus, but I say unto you. And finally, we're reminded by the law and by the prophets and by the teachings of Christ and by the words of his apostles that righteousness is much more than an outward conformity to the requirements of Scripture. There are certain acts that are evil in themselves but barely more evil than the thoughts and desires that give rise to them. And there are other acts which seem good in themselves, but are good in the eyes of God only as the thoughts and desires that produce them are also pleasing in his sight. God said to Samuel, The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. A prayer from the Old Testament. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let us pray. Our Father, these words of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ remind us that his call to us is a radical call. It is not simply a call to come to him in times when we're hurting and disappointed with life, to be encouraged and sent back on our way. It is is a call to bind ourselves by the yoke of faith and obedience. It is a call to love and to serve him with all that comprises our lives, our behavior, our thoughts, our desires, our words, our imaginations, all that we are. We thank you for this reminder. We pray that your spirit would keep it fresh within us. In Jesus.